Suggestion. I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and fangirl. Hello. Just start making stuff up like I have. Why not say dolphin? Who, who but cares? But how is that helpful to the audience who is trying to get to know us? Because you know what? It came from your brain. And so whatever magical, mystical thing came from your brain, that is an insight into you. Uh... <laughs> You're like, okay, that's some new age fucking nonsense. But um, thanks. <laughs> this is just between us a variety show filled with heartfelt advice ridiculous games and brutal honesty what did you say you were a fangirl oh <laughs> i write scripted content i watch nothing but drag race so <laughs> and so our guest is uh i'm gonna give it away our guest is bob the drag queen and i'm flustered <laughs> flustered Cannot handle dying, freaking out, texting everyone I know, losing my mind. Why do you think that Drag Race is your favorite show? And why does it resonate so much with you? Thank you for asking. <laughs> it's formulaic. And every oh. season kind of is similar in, in, mm. in like the challenges and the forms and stuff. So like you kind of know what's coming. So it's very mm -hmm. comforting. The structure of every episode is very similar. Uh, and then also it's like one of the only shows with like, I mean, the entire cast is queer. It's just queer people being queer and doing queer stuff. You know, gender is talked about a lot. And mm -hmm. as a bisexual, you get to see people in male drag and female drag. And that's fun for me. <laughs> um, it's also like one of the only shows where there's like so many queer people of color in one season. And like, this is my controversial take. The seasons that have mostly white queens are very boring. And the seasons mm. that have mostly queens of color are very good. Um, <laughs> and that's my hot take. And also, like, there's a great lip sync at the end and you get to watch a performance. Like, it's just great. It's extremely comforting. And I've watched so much of it so many times that I can put it on in the background and I, like, could tell you that I could do the whole episode from memory. I was listening to the Office podcast um, all about like why The Office is so comforting, comforting mm -hmm. and people just rewatch it and rewatch it and how like younger generations are finding it and loving it. And I think, yeah, I mean, as much as like as creatives, we're like, how do we surprise people? How do we give them something they've never seen before? Like as an audience member, there is something to like comfort and knowing what to expect and just like feeling familiar with the setup and scenario and characters. I mean, also like the reoccurrence of stuff, like if you watch mm -hmm. an all-star season, like your favorites come back. And I've been re-watching <laughs> all of it with my friend Drew, who's never seen it. So I've been re-watching it from season one onward for like a year with Drew. Uh, and we're up to season 11. And it's so fun to watch her react to stuff that mm -hmm. I already know is going to happen. And like see what she predicts, which she's so good at predicting stuff. It makes me furious because I'm like, oh, 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 wait till we get to this part. Like you're going to be shook. And then she'll be like, oh, is that what's going to happen? And I'll be like, God fucking damn it, Drew. Um, whereas Mal is uh, more fun because Mal, Mal never sees anything coming. So like even like the most basic thing, Mal is like, oh, and I'm like, God, I love you. Because like some people who are like in television, like things that happen, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this will happen. And then this is act three and then blah, blah, blah. And Mal is like like um in arrested development with magic you know like the howdy doodats where like um will arnett's character is like 
anyone who is like <gasps> about a magic trick is like someone who's like a howdy do that versus yeah. like not a magician. Mal uh-huh. is a perfect howdy do that. <laughs> I like what I predict correctly. Part of what's fun for me watching stuff is guessing. I love to guess. Yeah. Because like with Lucifer, I'm watching Lucifer. Uh, it's like a, a murder a week show too. So I love being like, that's the murderer. And then like 90% of the time I'm right. <laughs> huge, huge. And that's why procedurals are so comforting too. Yeah. That's like procedurals are comforting because you know what's going to happen. Reality TV is comforting because you kind of know what's going to happen. Competition. I only like competition reality shows. I only only want a a winner at the end. (laughs) That's because that's how you live your life. You don't live your life to live. You live your life to win. That's fine. I'm fine with that (laughs) being my thing. (laughs) We have got a great episode for you guys this week. We're going to be asking Bob the Drag Queen some tough questions about politics and drag in the HBO series We're Here and all the stuff that Bob does. And uh, I'm I'm literally sweating. I love them so much. <laughs> and then later we'll be discussing cognitive dissonance. What is it and why does it explain so much of what's happening in our country? I'm just going to put my head down on the desk. Yeah, it's not good. But it gives some clarity. It kind of explains a lot of stuff. Ugh, I guess. But first, hit it! International question! International question! International question! Currently manic in Kansas City, Missouri. I hope that everyone who writes into us stops using their real names and just gives us, like, fun Dear Abby names. Right? It feels like an old-timey radio show. I love it. (laughs) So, currently manic writes, quick summary. How do I come out to the people around me as bipolar? Oof. And when, if ever, yikes, do you tell a potential partner, hookup, friends with benefits, some guy I've been seeing but have no intention of dating? Please help me, my dudes. So I binged all of your podcast episodes a while ago. And after listening to Gabby talk about being bipolar and what she experienced while unmedicated, I realized I felt the same way. I decided to go to a psychiatrist who told me after a long conversation that my depression was misdiagnosed and I'm actually bipolar too. This makes a lot of sense and I've done so much research and really feel this diagnosis will help me get my shit together. Not a magic fix. Uh, but some meds may help. Mm -hmm. I don't know how or if I should tell the people in my life. Like, is it their business? Or am I further stigmatizing mental illness by keeping it to myself? I'm still figuring out my meds, so nothing has really changed with me for anyone to notice. So I am just not sure how to handle this situation. Even if it wasn't bipolar, is mental illness a privacy matter or should we share it? I don't want people to make assumptions about me, but I'm also not at all ashamed of my diagnosis. Anyway, I love you guys in the show. Also, I wanted to say thank you for helping me realize my life wasn't inherently bad i just needed someone to listen to me to get the right diagnosis snap 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 oh my god we love correct diagnoses (laughs) amazing so okay it is absolutely something you can keep private you have no obligation to share it sometimes it helps because i think people are confused about why you behave a certain way at least as Mm -hmm. as someone with bipolar disorder Um, and so it's easy to have like a shorthand where you can say, I I'm having a depressive episode or you could say I'm manic. Um, it's been helpful to me. Like I uh, archived all my Instagram pictures and then my partner was like, Hey bud, how we doing? And I was like, I'm fine. And, and they were like, we a little manic. (laughs) And I was like, cause they were like, how did you even have time to do that? And I was like, yeah, I just feel like I want to just clean it out. I just want to clean it out. And they were like, okay, so slightly manic then? 
And I think like that's helpful because otherwise they would just be confused as to like mm-hmm. what is going on. Um, and so I think like it, it is helpful as a shorthand with people you're close to. For me, I came out about it, but I totally understand like before I was really out about it, I was so worried because I mm-hmm. didn't want people to be like, she's crazy. When I said something or when I had an opinion or whatever, I didn't want them to be like, it's because she's bipolar. And I also didn't want people to like not want to date me or not want to like be friends with me or something because they would be like, well, who knows? Like she's a loose cannon, which I am a loose cannon, but has nothing to do with my bipolar disorder. (laughs) Um, And so like, yeah, I just I, I really feared judgment. But I found since being out about it, the judgment is actually a little bit less because they're not like, I don't know why she's fucking acting like this. They like know mm-hmm. why. And also like, you know, as you're adjusting to meds or as you're like, it's helpful to have the people in your life realize you might have some ups and downs. You're going through different medications like you don't hate them, you know, like like if I don't respond to someone's texts for like a week because I'm having a depressive episode, they don't go, OK, Gabby hates me. Like right. I can text them and be like depressed and they'll be like, OK, you know, um, it's just like a really like good shorthand. Um, but at the same time, like someone that you're just hooking up with, I'm not sure why you would need to tell them. Yeah. So I actually, um, was talking to a therapist about this and like how to tell someone, you know, like what your mental health history is and all of that. And basically what she was saying was, you know, it it depends on what stage in a relationship you are in and Mm -hmm. what kind of conversations you're having so if you're just having superficial conversations with this person where it's like i went to a movie last week or i like i i like this band or you know but if you are sitting down with someone it's sort of going over the history of your life Mm -hmm. and then you don't mention it then Mm -hmm. that's you know that's leaving out a significant part that's not necessarily like showing the full picture even though you're you're acting as though you are right so I guess for me, the, that that's sort of a really good barometer is like, you know, like, are we having those discussions of like, and this is what my childhood was like, and this was what my college experience was like, and then you're omitting. No, sure. But let's say like you're you're just like hooking, hooking up with someone and then you start to act like erratic or weird in, in terms of a friends with benefits or in terms of someone mm-hmm. that you're like just seeing or whatever. Um, I don't know if you're just concerned that if as you start medication or like you'll just kind of be acting differently or acting a little weird and you don't want that person to be like, what's going on? Why are they doing this? I don't know. What if you like really like someone, but you just like stop answering and they're like, oh, they ghosted me. They hate me. But it's just like you like can't get out of bed. You know, like Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you're concerned that you should say something so that the person doesn't think it has to do with them or or so that they have a full picture of what's going on with you. I think it can be relevant and I think it cannot be relevant. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So like in that situation you're describing, if it is affecting your relationship with this person, even if it is a more casual friend like relationship, then it is relevant. And so maybe it is worth talking about. But if like you're doing well and it's and you're just hooking up with somebody and like it's not really, you know, it's up to you if you want to disclose that. Yeah, Um, it's always up to you. Uh, But I think in my experience, every time that I disclose, it takes the self-stigma away. Yeah. Because it's not a big deal. Like, and it's so interesting because I've gotten to a point where I'm like, yeah, I got sick when I was four, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, who cares? Yatta, yatta, yatta. And the person is like, 
Wow, thank you for sharing that with me. <laughs> yeah. Know? But there is some real power in in just owning your story and the details of your life and who you are and just like laying it out there like I grew up in New York, I have OCD. Do you know uh-huh. where? Um, yeah. And and so if you're saying that it's something that you're fine with and comfortable with and that actually the diagnosis have, has given you a lot of clarity, then like that's awesome and like, you know, in a way this is like good news mm-hmm. because now you're on track for the right treatment. So maybe you want to share that good news with the people in your life. Yeah. I also like I think maybe having some books or something because I, I don't know. I got I was really um annoyed by some recent depictions of bipolar disorder in media which kind of paint bipolar people as murderers. Mm. And why does that bother you? (laughs) Because I'm a murderer and it doesn't have to do with my bipolar. I really wish people would stop saying that the reason I'm a serial killer is because I'm queer and bipolar. I'm a serial killer of my own accord. Oh my God. Anyway, um, I'm not a serial killer. Uh, No police listening to this. No police listening (laughs) to this anyway. Okay, so... I, I, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I think could assuage or just be like, look, I'm not like Marbles uh, by uh, is a really great graphic novel about bipolar disorder. Brain on Fire is a really great book about mental illness. Um, so I think like finding resources for people who have more questions. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Tell them to listen to this podcast. Hi. <laughs> I also, you know, I think you've done a lot of psychoeducation. It sounds like that, like you've really looked into it and it's resonated with you. And to me personally, like one of the things I try to actively do in my life is destigmatize mental illness. Right. right. So yeah. like I've made that choice as a person. So disclosure is a really big part of that. But again, that's like, what does that feel like for you? You know, but there is a lot of power in that. So it sounds like maybe this is something that you could really benefit from where you're like, this was my journey. I was misdiagnosed. Here's how I got correctly diagnosed. There's power in sharing that story and people being like, oh, maybe that's what's happening with me. You know, like it, it can actually really help a lot of people. It could also um, be like a good way to weed people out. Totally. Like if someone's like, oh, I don't, that's like scary. I don't like that. You'd be like, well, fine. I don't want to be friends with you anyway. I think that whether or not someone is familiar with bipolar disorder, their reaction to how you share something that is vulnerable is revealing about them. Yeah. Um, So it is a bit of a litmus test. But I I don't think that that's why you should share. I don't think that you should share from the place of like, let me see what their reaction is going to be. I think it should be from a place of like, I'm trying to build a connection with someone. And then you see how they react and you go from there. Yeah. I mean, you might be the first person that they know that – Look, I love Ari Aster as a director, but Midsummer had a really fucked up portrayal of bipolar disorder. And that movie was huge. And if that was like the only thing you knew about bipolar disorder, you would think bipolar people are terrifying. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, yeah. you, you might be the first person that they've met in person who who has has this and like isn't planning on murdering your entire family. Spoiler alert for Midsummer. <laughs> um, so, yeah. But again, that comes to that, you know, you're you've become part of that person's education. And that's mm-hmm. really cool, I think. Yeah. It's not your job. No. It's more like volunteer work. Do you feel up to it? Do you want to do exactly. that? You know? Yeah, you yeah, get yeah, to yeah, yeah. And some days you might want to and some days you don't. But right. there's no hard and fast rule of what you should do. Exactly. I love yeah. that. All right. Hopefully that helped. If you want to submit your international questions, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's just between us, P-O-D, at gmail.com. Stick around after the break. We've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Bob the Drag Queen. Ah! Just between us. 
back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have uh, Drag Race Season 8 winner and maybe one of my favorite people on the planet, Bob the Drag Queen. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. I was wondering, by the way, this isn't a dig. This is a genuine question. Yeah. How long do you think Al exists in the world and so people are no longer like, the winner of season eight because they're filming 13 now. They've already finished filming 13. Well, but so, you won. Yeah, but do you think people are like Kelly Clarkson, the winner of American <laughs> Idol season one? They do. Really? Yes, no, of not for Kelly Clarkson. How about Ruben? Are people like Ruben Stuttered? He won season two. <laughs> for him, yes. How many podcasts so? is Ruben Stuttered doing? Well, I'm gonna, now I'm gonna get him on my podcast. Honestly, figure out where he went. What's he up to? Like, no one calls Jennifer Hudson Jennifer Hudson from American Idol. That's true. But she didn't win American Idol. I feel but like if you're the win. winner, you know? Well, our last option, Carrie Underwood. No one says Carrie Underwood, the winner of American Idol. Yeah, but Did she's she in the win? country scene. Who knows what's going on over there? I got to get country. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, you should put out a country <laughs> album, to be honest. <laughs> what are you doing? I, I will not do in country, apparently. I'm from Georgia. I know country music. One of the reasons we wanted to have you on was sort of to talk about drag and politics and sort of like where you feel that they fit together and if you feel like drag is political or if it has become more political. Well, when you say politics, that's, I mean, do you mean like literally like with politicians or like the or like social politics? Social politics. I mean, in that, then in theory, there are politics in regarding everything. Like there are mm-hmm. always politics. I mean, everything has its own politics that govern the social uh, understanding of how things work. And as far as drag and, and actual politics with politicians, um, I believe that, you know, if you're a citizen, then you have a right in politics. Mm-hmm. So if someone's like, no politics, I'm like, right. but I am a taxpaying voter. Right. So why don't I have every right to discuss politics? I mean, all of the policies will directly affect me. So I think that I have the right to shatter for the mountaintops, whether I'm on stage or if I'm, you know, in my home with a friend. It was interesting when, like, you were presented on Drag Race. I think you were presented as, like, a, a look at this political queen. She did these protests in Times Square, and, like, she did all these things. And uh, now it sort of feels like if you're not, like, being purposefully political with drag, it's sort of seen as, like, strange. Yeah, I mean— I will say this, before I was on Drag Race, I was definitely a lot more political than a lot of my friends, but not mm-hmm. not all of my friends. That is a very important distinction to make. I was not, I'm not like the queen of drag queen politics. That would be um, a falsehood. But that being said, I definitely, um, I've seen a shift in um, drag queens really putting their noses in politics, which I love personally. Mm-hmm. How has that changed for you? Well, I mean, I used to be a lot more radical than I am now with, like, the protests. And I still do protests, but, like, specifically, like, getting arrested mm-hmm. um, and those kind of things. I don't—I don't, I haven't been arrested for, for my uh, political views in a very long time. Uh, but I also, at the time, that, that felt like the best way to get my message out there, mm-hmm. to get the most people to hear me, because I didn't have a national or international platform. I had to really— make a lot of noise and stir the pot as, as much as possible. And that was how I did it, by running across, you know, 6th Avenue with a big banner that says New York demands marriage equality now while the news was there. 
Yeah. Can you talk a, a, a little bit about what you were doing for the listeners that don't know what was you did in Times Square? Yeah, well, that's a slight misconception. It was actually in Bryant Park because there oh, okay. is there is very little traffic actually going through Times Square. Right. Well, actually, there's two things going on. because I, I used to also do demonstrations in Times Square as well. When I got arrested, I was working with a group called Queer Rising, and we uh, went out. We, we chose to go out one early morning and cause a scene. Um, with this great big banner that says New York demands marriage equality now and try to get on the news to bring awareness. And I used to do something called drag queen weddings for equality in Times Square every Saturday. And that was when I would go out. Me and my friends would get dressed as like brides and grooms all in drag and priest. And we would um, have these wedding ceremonies in Times Square. And because we were drag queens, everyone would gather around. And once they gathered around, we would like spout out statistics and information and hand out pamphlets and flyers. What do you think about um, so much activism sort of shifting to social media? Do you think that that's good or do you think people also need to kind of have boots on the ground? I'm not one of those folks who's like, your hashtag is doing nothing because that's that's just not true. I mean, Twitter is how Donald Trump won 2016. Um, so to underplay the power of social media um, would is a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you and if you don't believe that, just watch uh, the social media dilemma or the social dilemma, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you'll realize that social media is actually in, incredibly impactful and powerful and strong, if not too strong. So I think that different people, um, you know, arm themselves in different ways when going into battle. So that, that's to insinuate that like the infantry in the army is more important than the cooks or the nurses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you fight, you, I mean, you get into it with people on online. Sometimes people decide that they're not going to, but you respond and you'll like talk to people. Have you found that like enlightening or productive? Sometimes I have a really great conversation and like me and people reach a great mutual understanding. And sometimes I'm just being a petty bitch in, <laughs> in my pajamas, you know, arguing over uh, my morning cereal. Right. Yeah. So I, I relate I like to, to that a lot. I want to humanize myself and make it not sound like I'm like, and I am floating above the bullshit because I don't <laughs> float above the bullshit. I admire, <laughs> I admire in it sometimes. Has your perspective on America changed since you shot um, your show where you were going into all of these small towns? Yeah. Yeah. If your perspective on America has not changed after 2020, you're not being real with yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're like, everything's the same. You're just not being real. The country... It is it is unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or or maybe it like it still looks like itself, but it's just covered in shit and dirt and and mess. Like, you know when like in a movie when you see someone when you're young and then they see them again in twenty years and they they're like worn down and raggedy <laughs> and they're out of shape. That's what America is right now. And it's it's really interesting. I, I want to sit down with Trump supporters and like genuinely ask them like I just want to really know where you're coming from because like I want to ask like is America great? Do mm-hmm. we do we do it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like four years is the term limit. You have four years to do the thing you say you're going to do. Right. And I'm like, did we do it? Is it great? When you look outside, when you go on your phone, when you open your Facebook. When you talk to your relatives, are you like, this is great. (laughs) America is greater now than it was four years ago. Right. And this is awesome. And if it's not, then bitch, get your money back. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like it's time to change it up. Like, you don't give someone an extra four years to try it all over again. 
Right. What were the conversations that you were having with the people when you were shooting We Are Here? Were you having those kinds of conversations? Were you talking to them about politics? Well, just for anyone searching, it's called We're Here. It's the conjunction. We're Here. We're Here. Um, Well, were we talking about politics and, like, voting? Um, Sometimes it would come up. It was often about the people's individual lives and the things going on with them mm-hmm. and their acceptance in their community, amplifying up marginalized voices. We were focusing on things like missing indigenous women, uh, the rights of um, first-generation Americans, mm-hmm. um, of immigrant parents. We were discussing how differently able people navigate love and, and mm-hmm. acceptance in America, stuff like that. And did it change your perspective at all? I mean, you're from Georgia, so I imagine, like, going through the South was not, whoa, this is crazy, you know? like I mean, we went through New Mexico, Idaho, Louisiana. So we did, there were some, there was some South in there. And I wasn't blown away because I've been to a lot of small towns. I'm from mm-hmm. small towns. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it did feel nice to get a chance to be in the towns for longer than, because when we're on tour, you're there for like a few days. Or also, I haven't been back living in like Phoenix City as an adult, especially as a queer out adult, mm-hmm. um, queer, non-binary, drag queen, monster person. Um, so being in the town with that perspective, seeing people who also navigate a space similar to that was really interesting. And what did you learn? Well, I think I realized that there is actually, like, a lot of these small towns genuinely have, already have a strong sense of community, including drag communities. There's, a like, a bustling little drag community in Twin Falls, Idaho. That knocked really? me back. Yeah. Wow. That's we found amazing. three. I work with three drag queens in Twin Falls, Idaho. Three. And, 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 and it wasn't all three of the drag queens. There were still, like, eight drag queens to choose from if we wanted. Wow. Oh, my God. What do you think that drag kind of provides for performers that other things don't? Well, that's the thing. I don't think drag provides anything that other things don't. Like, I don't think drag offers something that clowning doesn't or that burlesque doesn't mm-hmm. or that stand-up doesn't. It's just whether or not you cling to it. If right. you cling to that thing, for me, for me, drag is uh, is the ultimate um, art form because you're a makeup artist, you're a hairstylist, you're a writer, you're a promoter, you're a DJ, you're, uh, you're all these things. Um, I mean, but drag, you have to learn it from another drag queen, which is what, what makes it so great. Yeah. It's like an apprenticeship, sort of. Yeah, for real. <laughs> but you you, check, you tend to do stand-up, right? That's like more of I what do. You, you wanted to do. I do some stand-up. <laughs> do you want to promote your stand-up special? Yeah, of course. So I have a stand-up special called Bob the Drag Queen at Caroline's, available on iTunes. Um, I'm genuinely proud of it. This is one of my... This is legit probably the funniest thing I've ever done. I'm going to go ahead and say it. This is the funniest thing I've ever done. Um, I'm insanely proud of this. Like, insanely proud of it. That's the best, when you, like, actually can be like, I did a great job. (laughs) And I got to perform at at a comedy club that I was once thrown out of. Really? Why were you thrown out of Caroline's? It was during my activist days, and I was really upset about something, someone they booked. So I showed up to this, to Tracy. Do you remember when Tracy Morgan said if his son was gay, he'd stab him to death? Yup, I do remember that. So Caroline's booked Tracy Morgan for Gay Pride Sunday. Like the Sunday, in the midst of that controversy, he was there on the Sunday of the Gay Pride March parade. Oh boy. And I was just so mad about that. Really indignant, <laughs> um, really self-righteous. 
Um, and I bought a ticket to the show, and I was in full drag, and I sat in the audience. And then when he when he went up to do his set, I walked up to the stage with this big poster of a kid who had been stabbed to death because he was gay. And I handed him the poster. And I never told this part. And I had this confetti cannon. You know a confetti cannon, right? Uh, yeah. But I emptied out the confetti, and I filled it with glitter. And I was going to, like, hit him with it. But I was too scared because he had this massive bodyguard behind me. I mean, who was huge, like huge bodyguard behind me, who was like throwing me out of the building. Um, and I was gonna like hit him with this confetti cannon right in the face, <laughs> but I, I chickened out. But I did hand him the poster. How did he I, react? Yeah, he uh, took the poster and he put it on the chair next to him. And he made a joke about it. Oh right. no! I was also my heart was thumping. I was in full drag in this room where I felt like I wasn't appreciated or wanted. Right. And I was just trying to get on the other side of the door. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's something that's not really talked about is that like, you know, when you see these activists out there, like, you know, pushing boundaries and getting arrested and just like really having their voices heard, like, does that come naturally? Or is that like, there's fear there too, probably that you probably have to push through. Yeah. And I mean, there's all, not, I can't say there's always fear, but for me, there was often fear like when I got arrested, I was like, this is scary. When I was doing the drag queen weddings, um, the fear had subsided because I had done it. So I was doing it every Saturday for over a year. Mm-hmm. So it was like, it just felt, felt pretty powerful for the course at that point. But like living life as a queer person um, has fear centered in it in general. Mm-hmm. Like I was talking to my brother um, a while back about the notion of ki- kissing your partner on the street goodbye. Like, mm-hmm. if you leave and you part ways. Um, and, like, for cis straight people, often you just kiss and you don't think about it. You just, mm-hmm. and then you part ways. Mm-hmm. But if you're a queer person and you kiss your partner on the street and you don't look around, you're making a conscious effort not to look around. Yeah. You're making the decision to not look over your shoulder as a form of protest before you kiss your partner. Yeah. Right. I know that. It for me, it was like we would get catcalled. Like it would come if I if with a, a femme presenting partner girlfriend, it would be like some dude might yell at us or follow us or something like that. And then yeah. with my partner now, who's a transmasculine person, they said that they like worry that like when people think that they're a man and talk to them as if they're a man, they're like, oh my God, when is the jig going to be up? When are they going to realize I'm not a man and it's going to be a problem? Yeah. And like, that's just like out in the world. That's just like existing on the street. Yeah, that is, I mean, the the short answer is yes. Like that makes sense between all of my um, friends who are either trans femme or trans masculine. I have a partner who's trans masculine. And um, the notion of the jig being up is always out there. And if you, if you don't know what, go look up uh, Contra points. If you're listening to this, Mm -hmm. she makes great. What's her name? Natalie. Natalie. Yeah. I call her her Contra points. I know I do too. Like, which is, I'm so Gen Z. I call people by their handle. Um, (laughs) But the notion of, being seen that way, I mean, I, I can't articulate it as well as she does. So just go look up ContraPoints and it's spelled exactly how you think it's spelled. Mm-hmm. She is also a slightly controversial figure. Um, not not insanely controversial, but she does, she does like her, what does she call it? The dark side, the darkness. Yeah. She does love the dark side of, of humor. Do you feel that like you have a more responsibility now that you are a public figure or is like the way that you kind of 
present yourself and talk about issues different now that you are in the public eye? Yeah, sometimes I think that. Sometimes there are moments where I'm like, I have all this weight on my shoulder, but I'm also, then again, I'm, sometimes I'm like, bitch, I am not that special. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm pretty run-of-the-mill and standard. Um, and I also don't believe in uplifting public figures and celebrities to a uh, infallible right. uh, godlike status mm-hmm. and that we have to allow people to be people. Right. And, and and don't even get me started on this Ellen business. Like, I I could talk for hours about how I feel about the whole Ellen situation because I believe that we as a nation have somehow lifted Ellen up to this godlike status right. where no one has allowed Ellen to have completely human moments. And when someone does something, and egregious as it may be, then I was intrigued by how the queer community really turned on, on Ellen. Oh, you were intrigued or you were like, this makes total sense? Well, I mean, it's weird because, like, there are certain people that the queer community will never turn their back on as long as they're not another queer. I mean, like, when Madonna, like, Madonna can, yep. I mean, Madonna, like, the, the gays will not turn their back on Madonna. They won't. They will not do it. They're not interested in it. Maybe it's also a generational thing. Like, her fans are, like, older generation. They're just so loyal. But, like, Ellen, who, like, paved the way for a lot of queer people to be on I TV. Know. There's a chance that this podcast wouldn't happen. There's right. a chance that this couldn't even exist if it wasn't for Ellen coming coming out on, on, on television. And then how quickly people were, like, trash, garbage, canceled. I mean, the, the internet is a wild place. Why do you think? I mean, I've been dealing with this a lot and thinking about this a lot. Are like, you canceled? Have you been canceled? Is that I was recent. I was recently canceled. Uh, Were you really? Yeah. Well, oh, I, what get, did you do? I get canceled once every like few years. What did you do? I said the very controversial statement that um, queer uh, art made for profit should be by queer people, and that was a mess. Uh, art made for profit. Yeah, like I was, I was annoyed at this trend of women writing uh, gay male characters that are highly unrealistic. Gotcha. Well, I mean, also that tweet or statement or wherever you said it could also just be easily shifted by saying, "I prefer right queer art made by queer people," and then right. no one can argue with that. I know. Well, they were mad. <laughs> they were very mad. But hose the point mad. Is- hose mad. <laughs> But anyway, I, so no, I want now we can't just because now I want to talk about my cancellations and why did and you get canceled, Allison? Have you been canceled too? I get in trouble a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so like I uh, like I this week I've been getting attacked about not too bad, but I said that like any white person who says that they're not racist at all is lying, and that it you know we're we're socialized with it, and that like instead we have to acknowledge it and work on it, and yeah. and like get get rid of it. Oh my god, that sounds like my cancellation. Yeah, but then I got in trouble because I said white people, but whereas like all races are racist, but I my I'm coming from the point of view of I can only speak for white people. Like I'm right. not saying oh whites are the only racist. I'm saying I'm white and therefore I can speak to this. But, okay, but that also does not negate what you said. For example, exactly. if you walk in a room full of basketball players and you point at Kevin Garnett and say you are tall, it doesn't mean the other folks aren't tall. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that's, right. that's not what that means. You just pointed at one person and say you're tall. I got in trouble on on Billboard. Um, uh, like their YouTube page because I said uh, all white people are racist. Yeah, and I'm not white, and I and I was and I was. But it's true. I, was, <laughs> I said all white people are racist. Don't at me. And then a lot of people added me anyway. Oh, they added you. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. It's just so strange because 
you're proving the point when your reaction to that is is but other races are racist or why why point out white people you know it's like that it's like the inability to just accept the fact that like yes yeah. we all have work to do um and I mean, needing I, to I, go on the defense i can't claim this but it's one of the most brilliant things i've heard it's like it's like saying black lives matter someone's like well all lives matter mm-hmm. um there was this uh, meme that was like, let me explain Black Lives Matter to bros who don't get it. I said, imagine you're like fucking your girlfriend and then you look her in the eyes and you go, you like this dick? And then she goes, babe, I like all dicks. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there, I, I wish I thought of that. I did not think of that. But I was like, that it really sums it up in a way that bros can understand. Could you imagine, babe, I like all dicks. <laughs> How dare you bring up a specific pertinent dick right now? They're all they're like, all great. All of them. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, but okay, wait. So I, you were really on it with like queer people turning on people. So I wanted to ask about this. Queer people will never turn on Madonna, even if she's racist, even if she does all these like very classist things. But I think we're also very quick to jump on our own because we feel like well, that that these people will listen like we can you know, we expect highly of queer celebrities because they they'll listen and they're supposed to be perfect. And we need this like perfect representation, although perfect is kind of fucking with me now in terms of like my own cancellation, quote unquote, because perfect to who to you. Like if I don't apologize or say the exact thing that you want me to say, you don't like me anymore. Well, I have a whole different thing about it. I have a whole thing about atonement. I mean. You can't truly atone to a demographic. You can't. It's not possible. Right. You can atone to a person because let's say, for example, let's say you step on Allison's foot. Right. And Allison says, ouch, my foot hurts. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, you say, sorry. Yeah, you can say sorry, but Allison's foot still hurts. So now what are you going to do to make it better? Are you going to get a pack of ice? Are you going to get some Tylenol? Are you going to mm-hmm. elevate the foot so it doesn't hurt anymore? And then once Allison feels like, you know what? I'm good. My foot, I feel better about this. My foot is raised. You are. You have atoned. Mm-hmm. But when you uh, when you upset a demographic, mm-hmm. everyone is like, "Well, I prefer this." And then the things exactly. contradict. Someone's like, "Well, I want you to do A. Well, I want mm-hmm. you to do B, which exactly. directly conflicts with A." So you can't atone to a demographic. You can't. Right. It's yes. like people pleasing. Not everyone is ever going to like you. Yeah. And you got to oh, just yeah. you got to do what's right for you. And uh, what's right for me is this game show. <laughs> Play a game show. Smooth transition. (laughs) That's my hardest part of the whole show is how do I transition into the game show? Well, you nailed it. (laughs) Okay, so this is a game called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. Uh, You can ask any clarifying questions you want, and then you tell me what you would do in those situations. So, our first game is um, a variation of America's favorite game show Would You Stay with This Betrayer? Okay. Okay. You are a finalist on America's Got Talent. You find out that your partner of nine years voted for your competition after the two of you got in a heated fight about what wallpaper to use in your guest bathroom. Would you stay with this betrayer? You lost the competition by one vote. So, based on my partners, either one of them, we are really open and honest with each other. And I also don't feel like I have to be your favorite comedian, drag queen, performer. A part of being my partner is not thinking I'm the best. If in that moment you genuinely thought that the other person was better, that's your right. That's your vote. 
But you lost America's Got Talent. I know. You that's were what's really a one, a one year residency in Las Vegas if you won. Well, to be fair, I did actually lose America's Got Talent because I was on America's Got Talent. I didn't win. <laughs> I didn't lose by one vote. I didn't even make it to Vegas. But I've already lost America's Got Talent, so I'm good. Yeah, rolls right off your back. Okay, yeah. well, <laughs> I've, never, I've never won anything, so I would be mad. Bob's like, whatever, I win all the time. I've never won. So I. what's my talent, by the way? If I'm on America's Got Talent, what is my talent? Uh, your talent is storytelling. Okay, that seems realistic. I was going to say um, getting canceled. I'm just kidding. Yeah, my, talent, my talent is repeatedly being canceled for... Uh, Sometimes things I don't even understand why. Well, um, I hate to break it to you, but your partner ends up leaving you for the competition. <gasps> Who was a ventriloquist? Their puppet was Bill Clinton. That's that's awful. I know. That's really awful. I know. All right. Well, our so next who won? game. Who won? I won. Oh, okay. Our next <laughs> game. Is this a date? While at a house party, one of the other guests you just met asks if you will accompany them to the snacks table. Is this a date? They serve you a considerable amount of cheese, the fancy kind. Are they putting the cheese on a plate and then handing it to me? Are they feeding it to me? You're holding the plate and they're putting it on your plate. Work. All right. Are they hot? Yes. Is there any tension on either one of our sides? Am I so I'm attracted to this person? Yes. You just met them 10 minutes ago, and then you were in a group conversation, and mm-hmm. then they turned to you and said, would you like to accompany me to the snacks table? Can you please tell me how they, like, give me the exact tone of voice, the look, everything. Okay. Hold on. Let me get in character. Would you like to accompany me to the snacks table? That is not a date. That is an invitation for fornication. That <laughs> <Yeah>. is... <laughs> that is... Is the snacks table what they call their butthole? Like, yeah, I don't... like, that is... Very hard. That was heavy petting. Yeah, yeah, was. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that and was second base. They they just have bad social skills. They just wanted to be friends. No, come I know, on. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> so we have one more game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child's dream is to be a professional dancer, but they are horrible at dancing. In order to support their dream, you blow all of your life savings, getting them the best training possible. They are still terrible, and you have to sell your house. Are you a terrible parent? The worst. <laughs> the worst. You're the worst parent. You're not just it. You are the worst parent. You are trying ever. to be supportive. Nope. No. To your own detriment? No. <laughs> not just your own, but to you and your child and possibly your other children and your partner. No, that is bad parenting. When I was a kid, my mom told me I couldn't sing. She said it with her own mouth. Really? And yes, she did. And I said, well, I'm going to take chorus. And she said, okay, take chorus. And she said, your singing is a little better, but you still can't sing. <laughs> it helped me a lot. It, you, you, know? re, you refocused elsewhere? Yeah, I refocused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I think you should tell your kid if they're not, like, you know, if your kid's 5'2 and, like, plays basketball and, like, whatever, they're not going to be in the WNBA. Like, my parents. You never know. No, my parents, like, should have let me know that that wasn't a thing I could achieve. But then should the parent go and try to change the structural system of the WNBA and Ooh. try to make it where, but also then again. The hoop is lower? Yeah, what th- What do, would they do to make it easier for me? Do they lower the hoop, allow other people who are five to kick out some of these tall people? Yeah, you're right. Tall, tall black women have had it too good for too long. <laughs> 
stick it to him. <laughs> well, my, well, my thought process, I was thinking about instead of um, basketball, I was making it about modeling. And I was like, if my child was 5'2 and heavyset, I think what I would say is, listen, I support your adventures and wanting to be a model. I will let you know for someone of your physical stature, it will be hard to be a model. So just know, just know that you may have to forge your own path. But what's hard is that if you're like a singer or trying to be in the WNBA, it's like you can only get so good at singing. There's not going to be a time where they're like, God, I wish I wish I had an album by a mediocre singer. I, mean, I don't think Billie Eilish is like singing anyone under the table. That's true. But, but she it's also left the Grammys with more Grammys than anyone. Right. Imagine being at the Grammys. I mean, this didn't happen. Imagine like you're Beyonce at the Grammys and then you watch Billie Eilish leave with like all the Grammys. And I'd be like, yeah. what the fuck just happened? I felt that way watching the Emmys and I'm like was rooting for Zendaya. Like I love Euphoria and I love her. So, but I could, I watched uh, Jennifer Aniston's face when Zendaya beat her and I was like, oof, that's a rough one. Well, that's how I felt watching. I'm not gonna lie. I was kind of annoyed by the Grammys because like, from my perspective, I was also looking at it from a different perspective. I was looking at Lizzo, who was the most nominated artist of the year. She was nominated mm-hmm. more than anyone. No one got more nominations than she did. So in theory, she should leave with the most awards. Mm-hmm. She should have the most trophies. Uh, uh, Lizzo showed up, did like five costume changes, opened up the show, dressed like the night sky. Um, Ten years ago, she was homeless, her living it out of her car. Cut to a decade later, she is on the cover of Time Magazine, Entertainer of the Year. Um, and then in my head, Billie Eilish showed up in a tracksuit and it was like showing me like what I was seeing was white people have to try this much. Mm-hmm. Right. And she recorded all the songs in her basement with her brother. Yeah. Like white people do this much and then yeah. black people do this much and the white people still get this much in the end. Oh, it's yeah. like that meme of um, it was uh, Ed Sheeran singing next to Beyonce and Beyonce yeah. is like fully made up and Ed mm-hmm. Sheeran like rolled out of bed and I was like, this is classic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'd like to announce that everybody won hypotheticals this year. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people follow you and find more of your work? Go to BobTheDragQueen.com and all of my social stuff is listed there. Amazing. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about cognitive dissonance. I'm never going to get over that we just interviewed Bob. I know. <laughs> Back to just between us. It's time for topics. X X X X X X baby. Bye bye. <laughs> so this week I wanted to discuss cognitive dissonance. Okay, so it, what is that? Give me the dictionary definition. It is the state of having inconsistent thoughts and contradictory beliefs, uh, and then it causes unease when your beliefs and behaviors conflict. So what results from that is that you then concoct ways to justify the mismatch. Um, this is my whole life. Uh, <laughs> this is all that I do. Um, what do you I'm mean? I'm just kidding. I feel like my opinions about things change every 30 seconds. Like I'm like, oh my God, this is what, how I feel and this is the whole thing. And then like a minute later, I'll be like, I don't even know why I felt so strongly about that. I don't care. <laughs> That's different, though. The issue with cognitive dissonance is a lot of times is that these people will have this idea Mm -hmm. and then they will do anything in their power 
to justify that idea. Even if they start to think it's false. Right. They won't let themselves think it's false. So that's why I think it's so pertinent to this time in America. Mm -hmm. And it speaks to what Bob was talking Mm -hmm. about, where he was like, if you look at America, is this what you wanted? Right. <laughs> like four years in, it, it like did Trump deliver what you mm-hmm. wanted? But his supporters are still so fiercely loyal. Mm-hmm. And it's because of cognitive dissonance. Yes. They wrap themselves into twists and turns and, and pretzels because they need all of it to make sense. They, they need it to be some kind of bigger conspiracy. There's a reason for all of this. And like he's doing this thing that he said he would never do and all this stuff. But like it's for this reason or whatever. I mean, I have some cognitive dissonance, definitely. Like I. Everyone yeah, does. Yeah, like I think I am like, this is my opinion. And then I'll like behave totally differently. Or even just like knowing that alcohol is bad for you, but then you still drink. I mean, that's cognitive dissonance in a way. Yeah, there's something very human about it. Yeah, I think that the issue is that it has now taken over what is it, at least 35% of our country. Mm-hmm. So, and that, and I think it's become very confusing for the rest of us because we look at these people and we're like, okay, so you're a military family. You support the military, you're in the mm-hmm. military, and then Trump comes out and attacks the military, says terrible things losers about them. Whatever. Yeah, calls them losers. But so how do you in your head still support Trump? And, you know, I was like reading about it. And I think a lot of it is that their belief that like white Christian American culture is so in danger that that supersedes everything else. Okay. So then they like will reject the reality. So it will be like Trump never said that. Oh, or you're spinning that out of control. Or like Um, he said it, but for this reason. Right. Exactly. And so someone was saying that the only way to resolve dissonance is by blindly believing whatever you want to be true (laughs) which means that like facts no longer matter all that matters is that like in your brain you're still a good person Mm -hmm. and what and and your core belief is correct and all of this evidence that it's not correct is is not true because then you would have to have an internal reckoning with yourself and what you think and and that's too painful it's so painful to do i've done it multiple times it's very very painful to do it's very hard it requires a lot of humility it requires a lot of, you know, like tail between the legs, kind of like, ah, I, yeah, that was not great. It's just, it makes, it's a causes so much discomfort. Yeah. So instead of like confronting yeah. that discomfort, they'll do anything to avoid like circumstances or contradictory information. So that's why you see these people no longer watch mainstream right. news. So they won't watch CNN. They won't watch MSNBC. They watched Fox until Fox started to question yeah. Trump. And now they can't watch Fox right. anymore. Now they just listen to podcasts and and right. that other, what is that other channel? OA, OAN. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they just want to hear, to hear what they already think. This is going to sound, uh, this is going to be a shocker for, for people who know me. I think the left does a similar thing. I think, there is cognitive dissidence on the other side as well. I don't think it is to the same degree. No, but I do think that if things don't make sense, there are hardcore left, more left podcasts that you can just hop on. Or there's there's a thing where if you are so strongly on one side of an issue 
evidence might build up in a way that you just are like, this is further evidence. Like you're only reading evidence that furthers what you think. Can you give me an example? When things came out where they were like, Bernie is not so nice. And like, whatever, we would be so fucking lucky to have Bernie right now. But it's like, you know, the thing of Bernie's my grandpa. Bernie is perfect. Bernie is so sweet. Then it comes out Mm -hmm. that Bernie's kind of like bristly and not so nice to people in in Washington and not so nice to his staffers. Well, it doesn't matter because he still is doing this, Mm -hmm. which like is true. A politician being nice doesn't really fucking matter. But I felt that there was a lot of like bending and cognitive dissonance. Yeah, mental 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 gymnastics to continue this image of Bernie as our only savior, which to be honest... He probably was, but, but like, (laughs) but like, you know what I mean? Like I've seen it on the left too. This like jumping through hoops to make certain realities real. I guess the reason I'm saying I don't see as much on the left is because you see a lot of people saying, look, Biden is not my perfect candidate, but I will still vote for him. Right. Versus on the right being like, Trump is amazing. Trump is God given to save our lives. You know, like. I think that cognitive dissonance makes it so that you can't do critical thinking. Not just critical thinking, but like sometimes two things can be true at once. Sometimes sometimes things are hypocritical and and that's the situation. Sometimes things are just harm reduction. Like you're right. Like there's an ability to be like Biden is probably trigger warning, some form of sexual predator. But Mm he is our best chance right now against Trump. This is the whole thing, blah, blah, blah. Whereas like Trump's people are like, he's not a rapist. (laughs) Exactly. They just deny the facts because if they acknowledge the facts, then they have to sit with the feeling of, oh my God, I support a rapist. They would rather all of those women be lying than them have to face the truth. But do you think people, I'm asking you, Allison, do you think people on the left are like, okay, we know that Biden has these allegations and we're just going to go ahead. But keeping that in their mind, that they know that it's probably the situation. I think maybe it's a little generational. I think that maybe older Democrats are like, he's just friendly. Yeah. (laughs) You know, whereas I think that maybe our generation and Gen Z are more like the reality of like, he is a sexual predator. And but also lives are at stake. The world is at stake. You know, the planet is at stake. We just got to do what we got to do. And that's why you see so many people being like, I don't want to vote for Joe Biden. Um, Because the left is willing to sit with that discomfort and be like, I am uncomfortable. Well, I think the people that are not going to vote are the people who can't handle the discomfort. It's so hard because I've I've watched a lot of stuff from people on the left who don't want to vote. And like part of me is like, I hear you. I don't hear you. Just solely because... I think that there is a misunderstanding of what a president does mm-hmm. and how powerful a president should mm-hmm. be. And the reality is just that, like, in theory, like we learned, you know, when we were talking about the Constitution in a different episode, like the executive branch should not be the most powerful. Right. So we need to be focusing on the Senate. We need to be focusing on the House. And then we need to have someone in power as the president who is more malleable than Trump. Yeah. <laughs> so Biden is not our perfect candidate, but he is malleable in a way i mean it was very if you're interested the instagram account failure princess um who's like a queer account uh posted this really interesting video about about people of color and and voting which you should go look at because i think they they made a lot of really salient points about like why are we always expected to compromise and so i think like 
obviously I'm saying to vote. I'm registered to vote. I'm going to be voting. But like if you don't feel heard in some way, like that video that Failure Princess made was really, I think, um, eye-opening for me. It's also hard because I do think you do sometimes cognitive dissonance has to exist because the world isn't black and white. I think there's a problem with younger people and people our age wanting everything to be black and white, wanting everything to be perfect, wanting everything to be like my friend, uh, friend slash roommate Drew wrote this review of a TV show and the TV show is generally good, but it has it has elements of it that are ableist and not good. And she mm-hmm. wrote the show is pretty good. Here's some good things in it. It's also horrendous on this level. Here is why there's parts that are horrendous. But then the re- reaction to the piece was like, well, if this is even a little bit bad, it can't have any good parts. And Drew was like, well, yeah, but I would be lying if I said certain parts weren't good and certain parts are bad. You can know that this show is bad and still be like, well, it portrayed this other thing really well. And the reaction mm-hmm. was like, no, good or bad. Right. It is a good show or it is a bad show. And I was like, you guys mm-hmm. are really not, you guys, listen, wait till you hear about the world. <laughs> the world is a good show and a bad show. I mean, for me, learning more and more about this cognitive dissonance and how it is this resistance to actually examine the facts mm-hmm. and how people double down on their belief because they cannot confront reality because that is too painful. That, like, really helped me understand Trump supporters. Yeah, It doesn't mean that I understand how to convert them. If anything, it makes me understand that they're lost causes. Yeah. That like, you know, and the guy who uh, coined the term in the 1950s of cognitive dissonance was basically saying, you know, dissonance is most painful when the evidence threatens our belief that we are kind, ethical, Mm -hmm. competent, or smart. Mm -hmm. And that is why people freak out when you imply that they're racist. Yep. They freak out. They cannot handle it. That is like too painful, a horrible feeling. And instead of examining it all, they're going to go, no, I'm not. Yeah. You liar. Right. And then and then they shut down and then they go listen to OAN <laughs> or read Trump's Twitter. Yeah, I think I, I that is a really good way of putting it. It threatens the idea that you're kind, that you're this, that you're that, because people need to think that they're inherently good people. I don't feel that way about myself at all. No, I'm constantly like, I don't think I'm a good enough person. Every day I, I battle with like, I'm not a good person. How can I be a better person? I'm, I'm not good. I'm bad. <laughs> I don't think it's that black and white. I'm just like, you know, I'm for some people and some people will disagree and some people won't like it and some people will. And that's the, that's the sitch. Or I'm, I'm more like, am I helping enough? Yeah. Am I being a good influence? Am I being a good this, that, you know, it's not, I, I definitely, this was something I struggled with a lot more when I was younger and like that would consume me all the time. Yeah. I was like very worried. I was a bad person. OCD. Um, Might've been tied to my OCD. Right. Yeah. But um, <laughs> still, I, I really sit with that a lot of like, am I making wrong assumptions? Am I making mistakes? What what can I do better? How can I grow? And I think that these people don't engage with themselves in that way. Mm-hmm. Instead, I am a good person and therefore I shall not accept anything that suggests otherwise. Right, right. And the issue is, like, you can't get through to them. The only way, the only successful way to kind of get through to them is by being like, hey, I was like you and now my opinion has sort of changed. But if, yeah. like, I come at you from the left and I say... I don't agree with you. They're like, fuck you. But if someone is like, 
that's why I think that there is power in these like higher up Republicans actually like coming out against Trump finally. I agree. Because it's much more likely that these people will listen to them than they'll listen to us. I agree. I mean, I, I also think like, I'm constantly like, was this the right thing? And if I think that I did something wrong, I will apologize for the thing I did wrong. But if right. I don't feel that I did something wrong in, in a particular situation, then I won't apologize for that aspect of it. Um, right. But I also, I do often be like, was that a good, was that right? Was that, you know, like even things mm-hmm. that I've said in the past, I'm like, eh, I don't know. I So I don't really understand people who don't take in new information and like really think about it because they they can't handle the the discomfort but i also think it's their community right and again look i'm gonna bring up the flat earther documentary and i'm so sorry (laughs) but in that documentary the guy says even if i stop believing in flat earth i can't leave because these are my friends right and so i think that's also a lot of trump supporters is they can't stop believing in trump because they won't have any friends and family Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how it's even bled into the pandemic and masks wearing, you know, Mm -hmm. so like they they don't want to believe in the virus. They don't want to believe that it's real. So then they have to do this like self-justification of like masks are dangerous. Yes. Or uh, this is my freedoms being. This is my freedom. They have to like add things Uh to justify their behavior. Right. Um, And so, I mean, it's terrifying. It's like truly disturbing and terrifying. And I I don't know how to adjust deal with them other than thinking to myself thank god they are not the majority they are they are significant i know and and they, and they embolden each other and there's like a absolutely there's like a thing right like it's a political statement so like if you're out with your family or whatever and you're the only one wearing a mask and nobody else is you are ostracized like it's all community it's all like who are you around who are your who are your friends who are your family like they embolden each other and if you have a different mm-hmm. opinion where do you go with that opinion you can't you'll lose right. everyone so you just have to like shut up it's very sad and scary yeah maybe yeah but it, I, at least for me it, it helps me explain what is happening in their brains yeah how what do we rate the episode um i rate it um 10 out of 10 America's Got Talent betrayers. <laughs> I will rate it a uh, 7 out of 5 correct diagnoses. Woo! Thank you so much to Bob the Drag Queen for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon and our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. If you guys want to leave a 5 out of 5 review, please do so. Yeah, go on iTunes or wherever and leave us a review. Whatever you're thinking about tweeting us, leave it as an official review. Only if it's nice. Stitcher. 